we look at what's going on in the world today, we see so many different things happening at the same time. And it can be very confusing trying to make sense of the debates around these things. But when you actually look at these things holistically, it starts to make some sense. Unfortunately, what we have at the moment is a lot of people in different fields looking at everything in isolation. So you've got one lot of people looking at climate change, one lot of people looking at energy, a bunch of guys looking at food, some other guys looking at the economy, some other guys looking at terrorism and foreign policy. And what I think is really important to do is to look at these things as part of a global system. And when you do that, you actually come away with a different perspective. My view, having looked at a lot of these trends, is that some of the most worrying predictions are most likely to be true. If you look at these things in their totality, what we're seeing is industrial civilization is unsustainable. And all of these different crises are really just different manifestations of the fact that this civilization in its current form cannot survive the 21st century. Hello and welcome to the Crisis of Civilization podcast. I'm Dean Puckett. And I'm Nafiz Ahmed. Thank you for all your messages of encouragement for episode one. It was great to have such a positive response. If you have any questions for us, uh, write them down on our SoundCloud page and I'll endeavour to ask Nafiz your questions. Please take a moment to subscribe to us on iTunes and leave a little comment or review. It really does help us to reach a wider audience. Uh, we've previously discussed the fact that President Donald Trump is fighting a war to protect the establishment from itself and the rest of us. So that was episode one, if you want to go back and listen to that. Um, so I'd like to just jump straight into your most recent article, Nafiz. Uh, can I say it's a pretty epic uh, article in Medium uh, entitled Beyond Trump, Rebooting the System from Inside the Death Machine, Free Your Mind, Find Your Power, and change the world. Now, uh, I shared this article around and many of my friends who don't even normally respond to these kind of articles that I post responded, reposted, and, and it really started a lot of discussions on social media. Uh, in the article, you use an analytical framework based on establishing axioms. So I'd just like to start by asking you what the heck an axiom is and how does it help us to understand this political moment? So the method that we've, I've developed in this particular piece and we've prototyped it in a couple of pieces, I've been designing with my colleagues at a group called Exile based in the United States who I'm working with at the moment in building the next generation of my crowdfunded investigative journalism platform, Insurge Intelligence. So this is something that we've developed as a way of really trying to get at the core truths or facts about a particular case in a way that transcends unnecessary polarization and kind of allows us to have like a generative dialogue about key issues. So the purpose of this, uh, this, 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 this kind of this axiomatic approach is literally to, I mean, th th what we've done is we've taken um, this, 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 this method derived from e e e Euclidean geometry, 
where it was sort of a simple mathematical method of, of identifying kind of the axioms are basically uh, kind of like intuitive or or empirically derived like statements of truth. And once you establish a number of those, you're able to derive conclusions and make postulates. Um, and the postulates can be different things and you can explore. So what we've tried to do, what we try to do with this kind of method is, is use it as an analytical framework to kind of like get to the core of certain things in, in, in a kind of investigative way and then use that to kind of say, okay, so what's the core issues that we can understand here? And then once we've established that ground, then how does that allow us to explore different possibilities, different scenarios, different ideas and get, and kind of use that to generate knowledge and, and, and yeah, and generate kind of like a, a constructive and productive dialogue. So we don't want to use it in a dogmatic way to kind of say, oh, this is the final truth and that's the end of it. But actually to say, well, these are some core truths that I think we can all share and, and agree with. And we may disagree in a lot of other things, but then how can we use this to now understand and illuminate our different perspectives and we've covered quite a lot of ground to kind of really first of all to summarize i think like a lot of my previous writing on the kind of you know the, this 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 moment that we find ourselves in the uh, the age of trump and how we got here uh, you know the crisis of civilization what is the nature of the crisis what's the nature nature of energy return on investment what's the nature of our of our kind of rupture with between the biophysical environment and our human systems or our human civilization and how does that explain how we got here once we use once we use those axioms to establish those kind of core ground issues it's then that we're able to we then move the piece into okay so if once we we've got all that we understand what's happening and i think essentially what 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 i think is happening is that we have this fundamental situation where human the human system has is just in is, is in a state of overreach mm. and it's and it's an escalating crisis it's it's and it's got multiple manifestations in different subsystems you know in the food system in the economic system in in the you know in the geopolitical system and so on and so forth and one of those manifestations is in the way the deep state operates and as i as we were discussing in in our first podcast and in my previous article that crisis we're seeing is, is essentially a kind of a conflict between different factions inside the deep state and and trump represents well he's the he he's the he's a president who represents the interests of a certain particular faction they're not necessarily heterogeneous either um but there certainly seems to be a nexus of these people who've come into power um who represent a very extreme kind of coalition of fossil fuel interests, people from the military industrial complex, um, people from kind of who have kind of white nationalist uh, sympathies and so on and so forth, who've kind of come together um, and who think that something fundamental needs to be done, something in their view radical needs to be done because the old liberal and conservative paradigms aren't working. And this is that, so this is their response to the crisis this is their very ideological narrow response to the crisis and then what i've argued really is that we've moved on from there once we've diagnosed that and we've seen that there is this kind of very regressive response then the question is really so what's our response and 
what I've done to kind of as a as a kind of device, I guess, in the piece to move us into that space of being able to be empowered to respond meaningfully is to kind of lay bare the way in which these guys actually feel that they are fighting the war against us. Yeah. And I guess that kind of is the center of I mean, at, at the center of this piece, I mean, the first, I guess in a way, the first piece was about the war inside the deep state. And I guess this piece is really about identifying, well, actually, it's a war inside the deep state, but really what we're seeing here, it's a war on everyone. Do you know the danger Dodger salute, Kevin? Aware, alert, alive. That's right. Now let's review what's meant by the danger Dodger motto. Being aware means knowing the dangers that surround us. And being alert involves planning ahead to avoid those dangers. Aware, alert, alive. Um, so just to recap, I mean, the axioms are essentially, they're kind of like fundamental truths about the system, which are, can be used as a springboard to cut through a lot of the ideological noise that we are, we are all probably feeling right now. Axiom one. Our endless growth neoliberal economy, along with its constituent technologies of energy, food and water production, distribution and consumption, are increasingly overshooting the planetary boundaries of our biophysical environment. So this kind of focuses on a particular fact, which is related to, our listeners might have heard of Earth Overshoot Day, um, which is a concept, which is a day every year which takes place and at that on that day um it's been created by the global footprint network uh who have done a really interesting analysis comparing our our rate of consumption of of, of resources um with the earth's capacity to naturally regenerate those resources um so what they do is they've created this kind of measure of of overshoot which which literally looks at that those two issues within one year and if basically it's found that the earth's capacity to regenerate those resources in that year is exceeded by the the our consumption of natural resources then we're in overshoot and what they've found using this measure is that actually since 1970 human civilization has been in a state of escalating overshoot. Um, we've just been consuming, over-consuming resources. And, and effectively what this does is it builds up a kind of a natural debt, um, mm. which which ends up being paid off by the environment, you know, in the form of kind of environmental degradation and all sorts of um, ecosystem collapses which can take place slowly and sometimes they take place quicker and sometimes they you have multiple ecosystems which are interconnected and, and it and it becomes like a, a kind of a downward spiral that's kind of the fundamental ground state of where we're at and what I do in my in my analysis in this in this piece is I link this idea of overshoot to two key issues one of them is um, the issue of energy return on investment, which focuses on our consumption of one particular set of resources, energy resources, and, and, and from fossil fuels. And, and obviously, I, sp I focus specifically on oil because oil is our primary 
resource amongst all of the different fossil fuels that we have. And we look at how over the last, um, say, century or so, um, you know, we, we kind of started off our kind of our kind of like I mean, if we look at we started off the cent uh, the twentieth century with a very high EROI, and um, it's calculated literally by examining how much energy we put in to get something to get to get a certain amount of energy out to see how effective effectively how efficient that process is from an energy perspective. And what's happened is since around the nineteen thirties, the e the EROI of oil was about 100 or thereabouts and since then it's it's declined quite dramatically and by 1970 it had gone down to 30 and obviously we were still in the age of of cheap conventional crude oil at that time but now as we've kind of conventional oil has kind of plateaued production um over the last a decade or so since, since certainly since around 2005 crude oil has not really increased and we've shifted to more expensive difficult to extract forms of oil as everyone's aware of which we, you know we use methods like fracking or other sorts of unconventional methods to, which are more expensive to get to get the stuff out and to refine it and make it usable um, and at, in this era, era we've got the EROI in the US of uh, uh, oil is kind of plummeting and it's kind of like it's gone since since the 1970s it's gone down by more than half and it's gone down to about 10 or 11 so what we're seeing here is that there has been this long term decline in the kind of the, the the net value of energy that we're able to extract from our fossil fuel resource base and that correlates with the fact that we've increased production. So even though we are increasing production, um, that EROI is going down. And in fact, there's a reason that there's a correlation between the, the, the dramatic increase in production and the dramatic decrease in the net value of energy, which is obviously that as we need to keep growing, we need more energy. And the economy is really just measured in the sense of you know you want to increase your production and consumption what you're actually doing is increasing your energy inputs because all your production and consumption comes from energy mm. um so what's actually happening is that as the net value of energy is going down we have to produce more in order to keep production and consumption growing it's quite a staggering and, chart that shows that basically by about 2030 we're going to be in debt by like two planets. We're using two planets worth of of energy and of natural resources. We'll be in debt by a whole planet. That that kind of highlights the kind of the complete unsustainability of what we're doing. Is that we you know we're we're using up these resources and they're not they're not um it's not possible to renew them in the time frame in which we're using them. What makes this a civilizational crisis is the fact that this is all interconnected with multiple other crises that we're facing. What we're seeing is that this kind of decline in the, uh, the net value of energy and this escalating production is obviously fundamentally linked to our economic system because our economic system is all about endless growth. It's all about unlimited growth on a finite planet. 
so it's so it's it's related to the nature of our current capitalist economy which rationalizes um this form of unlimited growth and makes it it makes this sort of business as usual process a rational process you know in order for you to survive in the economy you have to keep growing it's not that people are evil it's not that businesses and corporations are all just like have have this machiavellian view of the world no they're tied into a system which has certain uh, relations with production certain relations with labor which make this kind of make this kind of activity very rational and in fact necessary to survive within the economy it looks like an ordinary day in the usa all is excitement even the small fry are buzzing and the older boys and girls are let out of school oh this is a day the whole town's a bustle yes siree there's going to be a parade too and what's a parade without festive bunting and gala decorations and bands so the boys with the tall shakos practice their strut and all over town the final touches are put on sleek and shiny floats for this parade is going to be a mile long and some of the out-of-town floats have to be hustled over the road to make it on time and in the town auditorium a troupe of broadway and hollywood artists feverishly polish their song and dance routines for their show is to be played to a standout audience of very important guests. And so what you're saying is essentially like it's a house built on sand. As we've all known, I mean, I think many people have quite a good understanding now. You know, there was that film The Big Short. There's like it's in it's in the culture now that people understand these financial mechanisms are essentially created uh, created out of nothing to, to to prop up the economies. But there's also an ideological element to this which I genuinely perplexed by it. Some people dismiss that concept and, and say, no, 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 there's always, we can always frack, we can always do this. Do you think that they just don't care or they're just being very short-sighted? This is actually a really important question and it comes down to what I would say is the dominant paradigm and ideology, culture and value system within in which we are living. Um, and I should I, I, what the, the way I would say it is to is um, is to highlight the fact that really, if we look at what our conventional economic theories tell us, we find the explanation because what what was happening around the 1930s, what, you know, we had the heyday of industrial capitalism. You know, we had this expanse. You just imagine living at that time. You know, when you had the expansion of the railways and you had this movement into new frontiers and all the rest of it. And at that time, it seemed like we were opening this 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 new vista of unlimited possibilities. But what we were actually doing, and I think what what what, what economists did is they rationalised that with through theory and they created these explanations based on you know supply and demand and the invisible hand and what the general idea was that human ingenuity and technology would always be able to overcome obstacles and create new ways to kind of interact with nature which is which is not it's not exact it's not entirely false to say that that is what has happened and and what's happening Mm. in fact that has been 
human experience in many different ways. It's not like, you know, we've, I mean, and I think, and it's to some extent, this comes from the kind of the falling sky syndrome or the, you know, the chicken little syndrome of the past where you've had, um, kind of, you know, famous kind of issues like, you know, Thomas Malthus predicting that Britain is going to basically collapse because of, of population growth. And it's going to, and population growth will take over, and then there'll be famines and blah blah blah. And then it turns out that doesn't happen mm. because Britain doesn't exist in a kind of a silo, and all the rest of it. So I think there are legitimate, there are there are legitimate kind of reservations about a kind of a simplistic statement that well, we're just going to run out of resources. It doesn't make you know, and you know, we're going to, and that's inexorable, and that is going to happen. That's kind of like one narrow view. And then you've got the other extreme, which is, no, that's never going to happen because we will always be able to use technology to overcome those obstacles and create new ways of, in, of engaging productively with nature that can, that can that create uh, increasing resources effectively for human beings. So you have these two very polarized points of view. The way I would see it is to let's, let's use our axiomatic framework to kind of try to overcome that polarity to see well actually there are important truths in both of those perspectives we have and we do use technology um to engage and interact with with nature uh, and 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 kind of the, with the with various relations of production which are embedded in nature to, in order to produce energy and to produce many different things now, what's happened is that in the in the 20th century, we really got going with uh, opening up fossil fuel resources. And that was really the first time we encountered a particular type of energy resource, which 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 made which produced such a huge amount of energy. You know, and uh, as I said, in the 1930s, you were looking at a net value of, say, 100 um, so if you look at that in terms of ratio, you know, you're putting in one unit of energy to extract 100 units of energy. That's that's a pretty amazing return on your investment. Mm. And if you're living in that heyday, and that is the context in which we, um, be, we created economic theory as we know it today, mm. And economic theory and, and that and so if you think if you take all of that and you take the processes that were created at that time our whole industrial civilization it grew and grew and grew at that time we didn't see any reason why this would stop we, you know we were like children who'd encountered this amazing thing and we were just like wow this is brilliant and we were just playing but we didn't realize that at some point and it and literally it's taken us so this, it's taken us this point. I mean, it was in the 1970s that we had the first really major study by uh, scientists out of MIT who produced the limits to growth model. Mm. And they said, whoa, wait a minute, guys. We're on this trajectory and actually we've mathematically tried to model our rate of consumption based on uh, analysis of what is actually there. And I think we're going to hit a problem, guys. So it's at that, that point that our, that our science, the same science that we developed, that helped us, the scientific tools that, that helped us kind of, kind of exploit resources on the planet and that we then developed to understand all of these things and put them together, 
created the knowledge that well actually this system is is a little bit like on a runaway train at the moment um and we need to do something about it (coughs) so what we're now what we're now learning from that process is that all of these ideas about the possibility of endless growth the idea that we can do that and that this is normal we're actually part of a very specific civilizational structure that is dependent on abundant fossil fuel resources. So there is an intertwined relationship between the ideology of neoliberal capitalism and the the existence of these abundant fossil fuel resources. There is a there is a mm. there is a there is a symbiotic relationship between our global energy system and our economic ideology. And that's why when we're coming into this state of, of crisis and there are people at the helm of this system who have benefited from it sp- very directly, we're talking about the fossil fuel companies who are facing huge declines in profitability right now because the energy that they're extracting is way lower in value than the profits that they're able to make. And as we're seeing this kind of process accelerate, the economy is in this state where there's just not enough overall energy to create uh, the levels of economic growth in the system and to create the levels of wealth in the system that can even buy and afford this costly energy. And so it's creating this kind of escalating rupture specifically within the fossil industry and it comes straight down to the, this, this, this statement that I quoted, which is in the center of my article from the Heartland Institute, which is essentially a climate-denying think tank funded by the same interests that have funded um, lots, they've funded the Republican Party in particular, but really kind of in the last year or so of the presidential campaigns, they really began to put their money on Donald Trump. We're talking like, the, you know, the Koch brothers, Mm. Um, and you know other types of interest, you know Exxon Mobil, <coughs> who, as we know, in the seventies realized that climate change was real, and we now have all sorts of documents where they admitted that climate change was real and wanted to do something about it and change their business model. And then suddenly, well, perhaps not suddenly, but they made a decision at some point that actually we're not going to do that. We're going to deny climate change, and that decision we see playing out all the way up to the Heartland Institute statement where they put this thing out just like a couple of weeks ago saying that this whole thing about global warming and all the rest of it, this is basically a war. We are fighting an existential war. Um, and it's and the, the, the war that is being fought against us by liberals and, and, and climate progressives and blah, blah, blah. This is a war on capitalism. Mm. And we have to we are going to fight this war and we're going to win and it's a, it was a really powerful insight into the ideology of power and how it's being radicalized by this crisis the red carpets are out the signs of welcome are proudly displayed mothers are bringing the children to town for on this day of days, parking is no problem. So can I just take it back a step just to clarify a couple of points? 
So when we have Trump saying, um, for example, make America great again, and that has such an, a kind of resonate, and that resonates so, so strongly with obviously a large amount of people in the United States. Um, what it is saying, it's kind of they're talking about an America that can never really exist again. And that you're, what you're trying to say, and this is just my understanding of it, correct me if I'm wrong, is that there are these two polar kind of opposite ideologies. One is almost doomsaying, like we're on the Titanic, it's all going down. And the other one, on the other hand, is saying somehow technology will kind of work it out. And what you're saying is like possibly, you know, either of those things can happen, but somewhere it's more likely that something in between. But that, but that, during that process, in the middle, essentially, that there's all this chaos that is now being created in the system because of the stress of it, and that's when where how where we come I move now on to like axiom four because I think we've covered axiom two and three, which is that you know there's a state of information overload and polarization which we all now feeling. Yeah, I think that's correct. I mean, I think in terms of the, the, the polarization, in terms of the, the kind of the two perspectives, you know, one basically being essentially collapse and one being this kind of this kind of like technological uh, liberal capitalist utopia. And I think those two things are, I mean, I would say both, I would say the one of the challenges that we face, I think, is clearly that actually the technological capitalist utopia cannot happen. Mm. Um but equally, it doesn't. But the fact that that cannot happen doesn't necessarily mean that collapse is inevitable. I mean, something is going to collapse in that sense, um, and and we're already seeing various processes of collapse. So, for example, the Syrian state is effectively collapsed. There are many states which are failing, um, and I think what we, what I've what I've tried to do is to create a framework to begin to understand that those instances of collapse are actually part of a wider global systemic collapse process but it doesn't necessarily mean everything is going to collapse um but it but it, so so i think it's kind of like and even and even even what i've just said i think is you know needs more nuance and, and, and can be subject to an interrogation but i think it's important to say that from my point of view we don't know really what the what those two polar perspectives give us are perspectives and we need to use them as tools to understand the world around us what won't help is when we just stick to either of those dogmatically and say this is happening this is what is going to happen because we actually don't know we don't have enough information to really know exactly what will happen and anyone who says that they do is basically either lying or deluded but what, what what your article does show clearly, and as we we you just touched on, is that the conservatives, such as uh, the Koch brothers, uh, Exxon Mobil, um, and the Heartland Institute, are looking at it as a war. They are. They are looking at it as a war. And one of the things that I try to emphasise in relation to this particular axiom, in terms of the, you know the information overload. And the polarization. <clears throat> so, you know, we've described all of this stuff that's going on. And one of the things I bring to this whole context is the idea of what happens in complex adaptive systems, which we learn from evolutionary biology, that when we have a particular system, 
um, a, a biological system is that when it undergoes that state of environmental stress it, and it, it, there, you know it gets to this point where there is you know where there is a point where it needs to then adapt and the system has to if it doesn't adapt it will you know regress or collapse and in order to adapt it has to basically process information about the environment in the, in an accurate way and in a way that <clears throat> i mean it's not just an accurate way but in a way that is parallel with um, and enables um, a, a systemic adaptation, you know, which in the context of evolution obviously means kind of random mutations, which which result in 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 in, in real biological changes, which adapt the organism to the environment. When we apply that kind of thinking to what's happening in our global system, and we and we take what we've learned about information in that sense, then now we now be, we've got tools now to understand why. As we as we're entering this escalating threshold of global systemic crisis, we're also experiencing this this state of kind of information overload and polarization, which really speaks to the fact that our global system and the information architectures of the global system are unable to cope and process the environmental crisis as it's happening. You know, the full nature of this crisis, we're not it, the system can't process it. So instead, what's happening is <clears throat> our, our existing information structures are processing information in these really kind of dysfunctional ways. You know, you've got people moving into these weird bubbles of information. Everyone's very polarized. You've got the right and the left. You've got, you know, liberal and conservative. You've got all of these bubbles of of, of, of information where people are sharing with each other on social media, on Facebook, on Twitter, but they're not sharing beyond those bubbles. They're not able to have a generative dialogue with people who hold different views to them outside of those bubbles. And it's becoming more and more exclusionary. And all of that kind of informational confusion and disarray is even being reflected at a higher level when we look at the way in which governments and intelligence agencies and think tanks and all the kind of big agencies and the mass media and the way in which they <clears throat> kind of process information. Well, we, we can actually see, and, and to some extent we're experiencing that kind of strange rupture so i mean i mean and i think this is something that you can actually you can really personally feel and everyone i've spoken to i've said have you felt it have you felt the sense of acceleration hmm. you know 2016 everyone was just like what the hell happened in 2016 it just went nuts like every every single day something was happening and it was insane um and I think to some extent that reflects in an inf the informational state that we're in, that, our inf that this is a reflection of the fact that, yes, our informational sensors <coughs> that, that, we, that we use, they just, whatever it is, maybe they're becoming a bit more sophisticated or whatever, you know, whatever the explanation is, but the fact is, is that they're picking up now on all of these facts and figures, information and data, and they're processing it in real time and it's, it's coming faster and it's, it's more intense. But we don't know how to make sense of it, mm. and I think it's that that sense that sense of dislocation that we experience when there's all that information, and we don't really know how to process. It. We don't really know what it means. We don't really know how to engage with it, how to act on the, on that. It it really becomes overwhelming. That's the cr that's the informational crisis. That's the kind of the one of the biggest signifiers of the crisis threshold that 
I talk about that shows that we're actually at we're at the peak or we're approaching a peak of, of kind of like a phase shift, a, a systemic phase shift. And that that concept of a phase shift is something that is used a lot in systems theory to indicate the, the, the shift that can take place from one system into another. Power of this dimension at our fingertips. Let's think for a moment about the possibilities of the future. Man has within his grasp the power to wipe out civilization and practically destroy the earth in a few days' time. But again, he has the power that can carry him into outer space. For the first time in history, his foot is on the threshold of the vast, illimitable universe. It just feels like that middle ground is disappearing. Like the middle ground where people can have rational debates and conversations about like where we're at and what we might be able to do about changing things. Like perhaps that there are some parts of the way we organize our societies that may need to change as a result of the fact that we are seeing so much chaos around us. This confirmation bias that's going on on both sides is 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 more more um more noticeable than i i think it's ever been like we are having moments where these things are happening and people are you are just using them and taking them and putting them into their own worldview and as a result everybody's becoming more and more separate and i think that is exacerbated by social media and as you said before like we're getting into these bubbles um, and it's it's kind of, and as you said, in 2016, it just seemed to go into hyper overdrive. And I think everybody's feeling confused. And, and, and ultimately, that's why so many people were um, shocked that Brexit happened. So many people were shocked that Trump was elected. Because I think we're going on our Facebook feeds and we're looking at like, hey, everybody else thinks that Trump's a nutbag. Oh, everybody else thinks that Brexit's a stupid idea. But actually, it isn't everyone else. It's just everyone else in our little bubbles. So how do we break out of those bubbles, you know? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, that's the challenge, right? I think, how do we break out of those bubbles? And I think the only way to begin to break out of those bubbles is, is to become awake to the extent to which those bubbles are created in this context of crisis. Now, that kind of leads me to one of the kind of key things that I move into in my piece, which is related to, I guess, the way in which this system has neurophysiologically kind of wired us to kind of to, to kind of retreat into these bubbles. Hang on, hang on, hang on. Neurophysiologically, what does that mean? <laughs> so I mean, I'm just literally talking about you know our, our, our you know our, I guess the the way in which our, our, our you know our neurophysiology, you know our our, our neural networks, our brain, our, our bodies, okay. the way in which we are our the way literally in which we are wired. Right. Um, and this what what one of the things that I bring to it is the way in which 
when we look when, well when we look when we move into when we go back and we look at the period from the 1930s to say the 1970s and and that kind of heyday of expansionist industrialism when it was very apparently very successful and we look at the ideas and mechanisms that were created at that time which are which are also in crisis related to propaganda and one of the people that i mentioned obviously is this uh, character edward bernays who was kind of like a master of the techniques of propaganda who was hired by the american government and was very influential in the whole field of public relations um created some of its core concepts and mechanisms and ideas and methodologies and techniques we applied them for the u.s government in in very different very very different contexts um he was also hired by a number of companies uh, and one of the examples i give is how he was hired by uh, the united fruit company um in Guata who were active in guatemala and and his campaign was instrumental in galvanizing the u.s government to basically uh, undertake a coup in guatemala against the democratically elected nationalist government so edward bernay's ideas played a really kind of big role his campaign his his kind of media pr campaigning in america played a massive role in getting the u.s government to to, to kind of to get behind united fruit and have this cia coup which basically reversed everything that had been done by the democratically elected government and installed this horrifying dictatorship which then privatized everything again gave 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 the land back to united fruit and then can basically embarked on this counterinsurgency war against the guatemalan population resulting in the deaths of like 200,000 people and Bernays is someone who had such a huge insight into power and because because he was at the heart of it he was at the heart of what was going on and he has this really um interesting there's a quote from him which I've used which I I'm actually just going to read it out because it's just so it's so insightful from his book called Propaganda uh from 1928 and this is what he says he says the conscious and intelligent manipulation of the organized habits and opinions of the masses is an important element in democratic society those who manipulate this unseen mechanism of society constitute an invisible government which is the true ruling power of our country we are governed our minds are molded our tastes formed and our ideas suggested largely by men we have never heard of it is they who pull the wires that control the public mind. And the reason I quoted this astonishing quote, I mean, and this is it's astonishing because when you first hear it, you know, you just be like, oh, that's like something out of the protocols of the elders of Zion, right? That's like some conspiracy pamphlet. That's like some weird theory about the Illuminati. And it's like, wait, whoa, that's actually a direct insight from someone who was involved in that sort of thinking at an elite level in American society at its formation period. <clears throat> and what I, what I think is very important for us to do is to begin to understand how all of these structures that were developed um, have, are now being used. I mean, they've evolved and they've, you know, at, maybe in the 1930s, 
they were more centralized and it was kind of like a very closely tightly knit group well in the age of artificial intelligence these these processes these in, in these technologies and these these techniques have become more sophisticated they're being used by multiple governments they're being used by multiple interest groups they're being used by multiple companies and corporations with different views about the world some of them are fossil fuel centric um some of them are liberal some of them are conservative and all of them are competing for our minds and that is one of the things that we're also experiencing we're not just experiencing an in, a sense of information overload because that's what's happening in the world it's not because that's what's happening in the world the world is doing what the world does but it's the system that's entering this accelerated state and one of the things that we're experiencing is that all of these bubbles of communication that we're seeing are partly being exacerbated by these various interest groups who are escalating their own little information wars. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we've seen some of the news recently about one of the ways in which those information wars were fought in relation to, say, Steve Bannon and his company, um, Cambridge Analytica. And Steve Bannon obviously is the White House chief strategist you know kind of a senior guy one of the you know they're, they're essentially trump's muse in the white house um but he was he was also he's also you know the he used to run breitbart news we all know what breitbart news is like in terms of it's kind of very xenophobic and kind of white nationalist sympathies mm. and here we have steve bannon also on the board of this kind of technology firm uh based in the uk cambridge analytica which was doing all sorts of um, very, very sophisticated analysis of people's social media profiles on Facebook. And they were running this intense campaign based on their profiling of literally like 200 million Americans and having targeted um, kind of targeted messaging of people who they thought would be susceptible to their message. And they also now, you know, we've only we've heard recently from The Observer the same techniques by the same company were also being used in the UK in order to, to kind of manipulate the Brexit vote. Now, the one thing I would say is that we don't know how successful these programs actually were. Mm. And the other thing I would say <coughs> is that it isn't just the right wing that's doing this. Mm. The, uh, Hillary Clinton was doing it as well, arguably in a much more sophisticated way, actually, because she had a... a, a, a a team of bigger technologists behind her and they were doing the same thing profiling manipulating targeting uh who they thought were susceptible democrat voters they were making decisions about who to canvas which doorsteps to go on on the basis of people's profiles so what the point i'm trying to make is that it's not just that we're having this polarization people are fighting wars hmm. information wars on the base of this polarization and we are effectively kind of apathetically kind of sitting there allowing this information to come in and letting it come in. And we're making decisions in our lives and our consumption habits, in our relationships, in, in, our, in everything that we do based on this kind of these bubbles of information that we're surrounded by. And it's only when we begin to really understand that and really understand that ongoing information war to keep us going as cogs in this machine of production and consumption, that we can begin to step out of that and to say, no, actually, 
let me get beyond this. Let me get beyond this polarization. Let me, let me get beyond this kind of invisible manipulation that's going on and see it for what it is because it's not actually that invisible. And I'm going to just, I know we're running out of time. Um, yeah. the so the one of the final axioms uh, says that you've written down says, we require an evolutionary adaptation where citizens themselves take on the responsibility and embrace their power to collectively build and rebuild institutions, companies, businesses, non-profits, communities, markets and ecosystems which function in the interest of people and planet, which serve them and not parasitical vested interests. The imperative to rebuild the public sphere by building civic democracy is, therefore, about overcoming our crisis threshold and transitioning through an evolutionary adaptation to a new system. So I think that that will be uh, where we'll pick up the podcast in the next episode and we'll move forward and we'll talk about you know, how we can start to do that. Uh, so thank you very much, Nafis, um, and I'll, um, I'll speak to you again in a couple of weeks. Thanks, Dean. Great. Look forward to it. All right. Thank you very much. And you can listen to our, um, you can kind of subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, on SoundCloud. We've got a Facebook page, which is uh, Crisis of Civilization. And yeah, please send us your messages, thoughts, questions, and we will respond accordingly. Thanks very much for listening. Swing down. Why don't you swing down, straight stop and let me ride. Swing down, straight stop and let me ride. Rock me load, rock me load, come and easy. I got home on the other side.